0: So here we are, the second day of our July Retreat, Center for Spiritual Awareness July Retreat. And we're continuing with our discussions both about meditation and our spiritual awakening path. So again, in our meditation, it's very useful to be reminded again and again that we sit to meditate not in order to produce an effect. We're not trying to make something happen. We're not trying to have a special experience. We sit and meditate in order to allow the mind to come clear, the mental field to the, the, the vrittis, the fluctuations in the field of awareness, to subside, to become quiet. And when they become quiet, then we rest in awareness, pure conscious awareness. This is our nature. This is our essential, uh, the way that we are, and. This is obscured I mean the reason that we don't experience this all the time is because the noise in the mind all the sense input the memories the emotions the anticipations all of this business is going on and telling us stories constant stories there is a narrator that is narrating the experience of our life and it is insistent it never shuts up and so when we stop the story when we sit in and rest in meditation all we're doing is giving ourselves the ability to focus attention and to focus attention on anything it doesn't matter what but to keep the, the attention focused so that the mind doesn't have time to be running around and doing its distracted free associating thing so we just pick anything our object we can watch the breath We can listen to a mantra in conjunction with the breath. We can rest in the Aum vibration, listen to Aum. We can pray, that is to talk to God, that is our higher reality, our higher self, uh, and just have a conversation until we're all talked out and then listen and listen. Uh, We can contemplate, you know, if we put all of our attention on contemplating infinity, infinity, you know we say in the beginning, to open your mind and open the essence of your being, open your heart to the infinite and so you know this is this sounds good, but what is that experience? What is it like to be infinite and Of course, as long as we are thinking about ourself in relation to the universe, galaxies, whatever, as long as we this is a subject object relationship, we're still thinking about experience. And in order to experience infinity, we have to let go of thinking about it. We have to say, okay, well, what is infinite? And then we have to be open, receptive, looking, having the intention to have this experience without analyzing and trying to figure it out or without trying to superimpose ideas in in our concepts about this. So all of our practices in meditation are simply ways of focusing attention, focusing, focusing. And when we can keep our attention focused on one point where it's no longer fluctuating, then this interesting thing happens. We start to have this sense, this feeling of merging or blending with whatever our object is, whatever we're paying attention to, whatever we're looking at. And I have someone to knit here somehow. Excuse me. Technical. So, so, so this sort of magical thing that we cannot control, we can't make it happen, is when we begin to feel ourselves to be blended with uh, whatever our object, but we're paying attention to, and we know what this is like because sometimes we get involved in a project where we're uh, planting our garden, or painting a picture, or writing a story, and when we become so engrossed, so involved in what we're doing, that we kind of forget ourself, and there's just this, we can just sort of notice this process is happening through us, but there's no longer kind of the sense of, I, I am doing this, it is doing itself, it's unfolding. And in the same way, when we become very focused with our attention, there is this sense that it is just happening the breath is is breathing the body is breathing and i'm just observing not separate from it but just part of it or i'm listening to om and eventually i start to feel this blending this merging with whatever my object is and at that time at that point we have set the stage created the environment for this next step which is transcendental that is where there is a shift in perspective this is not something we can make happen. It happens automatically, naturally, when our attention is one-pointed. There is a shift in perspective, and we recognize, we realize, we, we experience oneness. We experience awareness, consciousness, without an object, without anything to think about, without anything outside to pay attention to, pure existence being. So this happens, this transcendent experience happens when our attention becomes completely focused, one-pointed. And so our meditation practice is simply allowing the obstacles, the things that stand in the way of our experience, of our true nature, to let those, uh, let those go, to let those subside. And every time that a thought bubbles up, a memory bubbles up, an emotion bubbles up in the background... Then we simply notice that and then let it go. We put our attention back on this, whatever our object is. Our energy, our life force follows our attention. Our attention is that which directs prana, directs life force. If we pay attention to the thoughts that bubble up, then they get energy. They, get, they, ha- they have our life force and they become larger and they dominate our awareness. But if we learn to keep our attention focused and disregard these thoughts, then they, they easily subside. Without energy, without attention, they subside. They just go away. So we can practice in the beginning just disregarding thoughts, disregarding distractions. And, and the tool to help us with this is whatever our meditation focus is. So we use this focused attention and then, finally, when we come to the place where the mind is very quiet, when the thoughts have subsided, and there may be little rumblings in the background, but they're very easy to disregard now, then we can just rest in silence, just rest in being open, receptive and and this gentle intention, what is there to experience what am what am I what not who, but what am I? what is God what is and so we just have this gentle inclination to be informed, to have deeper, deeper levels of awareness. So, so this is our meditation practice. It's very simple, very simple. It takes practice. We have to, to continue to come back and become adept, become uh, masters of focusing attention. But we can do this. you know. And as we practice, we find that even a little bit of practice, even a little bit of uh, competency, uh, pays off with re- rewards that so we find that we are becoming a little more awake a little bit more aware that our uh, that our attention is not distracted quite as easily and when we're not meditating there's another benefit and that is that we're actually able to focus our attention on what we're doing and where we are much more easily so as Mr. Davis would say that ordinary consciousness is fragmented and blurred ordinary consciousness is fragmented and blurred that means confused that means not focused that means that that ordinary consciousness, and this means unfortunately most of the people that are walking around that we interact with and relate to, are kind of living in a little bit of a fog. They're unsure. They don't know. Uh, there are all these whims and emotions and desires that are dragging them one way or another. Fear is pushing one button. Uh, anticipation and desire is pushing another button. And so we need to be, uh, and we can be. Um, superior to that super consciousness means that we have risen above normal consciousness. This is the, the blurred, fragmented consciousness. We've risen above that and we're now awake and we're paying attention and we notice the thoughts and the feelings and the actions, and we can take intentional, uh, make intentional decisions about how we will think and how we will feel and how we will act instead of being, the effect of what's happening around us, the effect of the circumstances and events, the effect of what other people tell us and whatever other people think, um, so we become self-realized, self-anchored, self-grounded, and self-directed. So this is all; these are all benefits that we watch unfold slowly but surely over time with our regular practice. So, so our. Uh, So our conversation this week, I want to continue a little bit more about the the Bhagavad Gita, which is this wonderful spiritual text. And uh, yesterday we went into some detail about the background. Um, Bhagavad Gita is a section of this larger, long, epic poem, uh, the Mahabharata, which is the story of of King Bharata and all of his descendants and kind of the story of India. Um, and it's a remarkable piece of work because not only is it a fascinating story, there has all kinds of romance and intrigue and, uh, you know, magical things happening. And it's really quite remarkable just from, as a story, but also it's written as a metaphor. So everything in the story, every person, uh, each individual represents a spiritual concept, a spiritual idea, an aspect of reality, and once we understand the code we know what these things represent, then we can see this much deeper uh, teaching, this much deeper understanding of the nature of reality how how uh how god uh, ultimate reality ishvara expresses and becomes this reality that we experience, and also you know how we are made, what is what goes on inside of us, what the tendencies and characteristics. So this is quite fascinating. And then within this larger story of the Mahabharata is this little section called the Bhagavad Gita. And this is uh, basically the song of God. Bhagavad is God. The Gita is the song. And so this is the song, the conversation between Krishna, which represents awakened, enlightened consciousness. This is our highest awareness, Krishna. And Arjuna, which represents the, the third chakra, Um, which is the seeking soul. So this is Arjuna represents our uh, inclination to want to be spiritually awake. And because our nature is already spiritual, is already perfect, and there is this inclination within for this, for our awareness to be restored to its original condition. There is an impulse always within us, an impulse to be whole, to be complete, to be awake. So this impulse constantly is, is kind of driving behind the scenes, is driving our reality. And, uh, and because we are identified with this uh, individualized consciousness, now remember in Samkhya philosophy that uh, consciousness, Purusha, which is pure conscious awareness, Prakriti, which is the expressive aspect of this, we have consciousness and its expressive aspect the expressive aspect moving through the gunas becomes material reality everything that we can see and touch and taste and think about have a concept for everything is prakriti and purusha consciousness becomes identified with this material uh, reality with the material expression of itself And so as consciousness becomes identified with the materializing aspect, the expressive aspect, then this identification results in on the cosmic scale, what's called Mahat, which is cosmic identification, the cosmic ego, the cosmic mind and uh, consciousness. And then as this comes into manifestation, uh, aspects of pure consciousness viewpoints rays of pure consciousness become identified with matter with Prakriti and in that identification this is what we call a soul this is what we call this individualized awareness that we are so each of us is pure consciousness that has become kind of enchanted with this amazing life and with this amazing body and with all the interactions kind of under a spell where pure consciousness identifies to the place where it believes that it is this separate entity. And so this is the, this is the main cause of, uh, of problems and suffering is this ego, the sense of being separate. The feeling, the experience that I am separate from the wholeness of pure consciousness, that I am separate from Ishvara, that I'm separate from ultimate reality. This sensation, this feeling is the magic spell That keeps us limited and so so within there is this impulse to be awake to to remember to wake up it's like we're having this dream and sometimes the dreams a nightmare sometimes the dream is you know amazing Uh, we don't want to wake up Um, and that can be the problem too so So here we are, but we're just on the edge of the dream and awake, and we're kind of back and forth between that. There's this impulse to be awake. It's time to wake up, you know, to to have a life. And so so we combine this impulse to be awake with this identification, this feeling of separation. And so the impulse to be awake creates desire in this individualized consciousness. It, It creates a desire to be whole, to be complete. But because individualized consciousness is operating through deluded mind, you know, this This is what in the Bhagavad Gita we say, this Dhritarashtra, the king, is blind. Blind mind, deluded. So, so this impulse to be complete and to be whole is distorted in the mind, and this comes up as desire. So we have the desire to be whole and complete, but it's distorted, and so we think, that if we can get the right thing, if I can live in the right place, if I have the right relationship, if I can just have some more of this substance, whatever it happens to be, this desire is going to make me complete. Will finish me. Will make me whole. And so we have these desires that continually, that we are continually chasing because of this impulse within to be whole and complete once again. And so we're looking to um, to wake up to what's really happening here and to, to eliminate these distortions, this uh, aberration and perception that leads us to continually be chasing desires. And of course, you know, fear is a negative desire. So so all these things that push us around are the result of uh, occluded, uh, aberrant mind. So... So now we come to the Bhagavad Gita, and again, the background for just for the, the actual story here, without going into lots of detail, is that we have Duryodhana, who is the blind king, and um, his uh, son, his number one son, Duryodhana, and Duryodhana represents basically, you know, all the lower desires, passion the need to have more sense input, the need to have more sense experience, all the things that drive us around that are not particularly useful. And of course, there's nowhere in here that we say that having sense experience is bad. It's just when they're compulsive, when they're habitual, when they're not good for us, when we find that they're, you know, become habitual and and they're, they're dragging us around and we are, um, we, we are not free to do anything that we want because of these compulsions. You know these are the desires that are that are not useful. This is Duryodhana. And so uh, so Drritastra blind mind has one hundred children, ninety nine sons and one daughter, and the first son, the oldest and the and the sort of chief of the clan is Duryodhana. And so he we have uh, have these forces, um, their army is, arrayed on one side of the field on the other side of the field we have arjuna and remember arjuna represents the third chakra this is the seeking soul the aspiring soul and so arjuna represents each one of us either now where we are and or where we were in the past before we became fully enlightened but this Arjuna is the seeking soul that aspires to be awake. It is being imp- following the impulse from within to wake up, to be fully conscious, but is not yet. And so the fourth chakra, I mean, the third chakra is also, uh, you know, this is grounded. This is a, a physical, mental state to be in. It's a state of awareness. Uh, it's also kind of the center of being goal oriented. You know having a sense of will so willpower and goal orientation and in inner strength from that standpoint these are all third chakra this is Arjuna and Arjuna is aspiring to wake up and in this awakening we move from the third chakra from our intention and from being goal oriented and a little bit more willful we move to the fourth chakra the heart and the heart chakra is the place where we find this opening where instead of I am doing this and I am in control and I am making things happen, now when we get to the heart, we recognize that we are really connected with others. And so compassion begins to dawn. We recognize that whatever we're doing really has an effect and influence on the world around us, on the individuals around us. And we become sensitive to their needs and we become sensitive to their suffering. And so we begin to kind of expand our awareness and our openness and letting go a little bit of this ego, this sense of separation and feeling more in harmony, more one. So this is, this is the aspiration. This is where we grow to as we move through this fourth chakra. And then the fifth chakra, as we continue, the fifth chakra, the throat chakra here uh, is associated with, um, with the intelligence And with apprehension of the truth so we go through this opening and start to feel one with others and be compassionate and then we become much more sensitive to what's really going on how does this work how am i wired up how are they wired up what's the nature of the universal manifestation what are the laws of consciousness so we become more open and receptive and we start to apprehend and be more more sensitive to and more insightful to the the truth, and so at this level we find we find that we go back and we read scripture, we read the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutras, and we begin to understand it at a much deeper level. We go, wow, you know, this was always useful, but now I see much deeper. I see much more relevant, and so this comes as a result of continuing this awakening. So we move through uh, the fifth chakra, and then eventually the sixth chakra the third eye center and here is revelation here we we move beyond apprehension of the truth understanding the knowledge the the awareness we move into experience revelation we actually we actually find oh wow you know there here was a time in my meditation here was a time when I was completely aware and there was no thought I was just resting in being this is revelation, you see, we have this experience. And then finally, the seventh chakra, the final step is full liberation. That is the innate knowledge of ourself in all reality and um, and the letting go of all the conditionings and the things that, that uh, you know, that have been driving us around, all the compulsions, all these things are, are completely let go and we're able to live liberated that is we are totally free there are no longer constraints there's no longer ideas no longer anything outside we are fully liberated fully conscious and this does not mean that we are out of the world that we're out of our body it just means that we no longer are conditioned see so liberation of consciousness means we are fully awake all the time and we are fully free and liberated and so we can interact and do what we need to do but we're no longer acting and doing what we need to do from a sense of ego from trying to be complete and whole but rather we're doing what we do because we can because we are part of life life impels us to cooperate with itself and so basically we we transform ourselves back into this pure consciousness, God, expressing through God in this form and interacting with God as everyone and everything. This is this, this beautiful process, this beautiful dance of manifestation, creation, and we part, just participate with it. And of course, because we're participating with it, uh, it's fulfilling. We do You know, there is no limitation. There's nothing that we need. We have no... Aspiration for anything outside of ourselves—we are already whole, complete. Um, so we are in this wonderful state of bliss. This is this the state not of um, an emotional joy, but it's the state of deep knowing of self, of being. You know, so so grounding and so wonderful. So so now this battle begins, is set up, and the battle is bec- between. This, our inner spiritual nature, its aspiration to be fully awake and diluted mind, the senses, the conditionings, um, this sense of individualized consciousness, all of these aspects are on one side. And on the other side, here we have this, this aspiration, this feeling to be fully awake. But the aspiration, the feeling to be fully awake because it's not completely mature yet this is remember arjuna is still kind of willful and kind of uh aspiring but not fully conscious and so so there is some conflict there what do we do so so it said that there is on one side the pandavas this is arjuna and his four brothers there are five pandava brothers and they represent the five chakras the five lower chakras and so here we have uh, Yudhisthira, which is um, which is the intellect discerning aspect, Yudhisthira. And then Bhima, which is the heart center, strength, uh, um, the prana, pranayama, life force. And so this is Bhima. And then Arjuna, you know, self-will and intention to move. And uh, Nakula and Sahadeva. And so we have, we have these different... Uh, individuals the five pandava brothers that represent these five chakras and the five pandava brothers are all married to the same woman Draupadi, and and uh, you know we had the story about that how that happened uh, but she represents kundalini shakti so this kundalini this energy life force animates the five chakras and uh, enlivens them and makes possible for their expression. So wonderful symbols, you know, wonderful metaphors. And so uh, so it's said that now we have, we're about to go to battle now. So we have kind of set the stage and we know Arjuna is on one side, Dhritarashtra, the king on the other side, Duryodhana leading the army. Dhritarashtra, because this is blind mind and he's the king, he's not even present on this in this conflict. He is at some distance away And in order to know what's happening, his advisor, his counselor, Sanjaya, is telling him the story. So everything that happens in the Bhagavad Gita is narrated by Sanjaya. This is is the intuition, the intellect, reporting back to deluded mind what's happening in this conflict. And So Sanjaya is seeing at a distance what's happening on the field and reporting this to the king. So the whole Bhagavad Gita constantly comes back to uh, Dhritarashtra says, "Well, what's happening?" and Sanjaya says, "Okay, here's what I see now. Here's what I see. Now. Here's what's happening." So, so that's the the context for the for the actual story, and uh, and the the field, the the place where this battle is about to take place, is called the field of Dharmakshetra, Kuru the field of Dharmak chetra, Kuru chetra, and chetra is place, Dharma is righteous action, virtue, so morality, this is the Dharma, and on the other side we have the Kuru, which is the deluded mind, the senses, the conditioning, so, so we have the field of uh, Dharma, virtue, versus this deluded mind, and this is the field where this battle is to take place, and it's also represented by the body. So, so here we have the, the, the forces of both sides. And on one side, Dhritarashtra's side, we have this um, uh, army, which is made up of kind of the leader, which is Bhishma. And Bhishma represents individualized consciousness. So this is the sense, the ego, the sense of independent self-existence. And so Bhishma is kind of the leader of the side of the Kurus. And, and as the, as the story begins, Sanjaya is reporting. He says, here's what's happening. And here are our guys. Here are all of our, um, our wonderful warriors and, and uh, soldiers. And they are really out there ready to go. And, And we're talking about, you know, both sides are, are at it. And so here they are blowing their conks and, and, and uh, making a big noise and talking about how wonderful they are, you know, and getting, getting, they're, getting themselves really worked up. And the characteristics of these individuals that make up this side are egocentric, self-consciousness, um, and, and are gathering their forces to protect against all this change. They don't want to change. They don't want to release the habits and the conditionings, and and so here is here is the mind, kind of rallying its forces, to resist change. We don't. We really don't want to change. Yes, you know, maybe we can see where it could be useful, but not yet. I think it was uh, uh, name's not coming, but one of the, the famous uh, Christian Christian monks, mystics from back in the fourteenth century, twelfth century um would pray pray father please let me see you let me be fully awake let me be fully conscious but not yet i'm not ready you know i still have some there's still some fun to have out here and so so we have this resistance this mental resistance and i remember i thought it was very interesting i remember when i was very when i just began learning to meditate and was practicing and of course i was very regular but I noticed two things. One, that I had a knot in my at the heart center in my, in my spine. There was like a knot, a pain. And I would sit to meditate. I wouldn't be aware of it at any time. I would sit to meditate and it would be this discomfort that was just kind of right there in the spine. And so I, you know, over time I dealt with that and it finally subsided. The other thing I noticed when I was meditating in, at home Oftentimes, I would sit to meditate. I would start to turn my attention within. I would get very quiet and centered, and the telephone would ring. Now, it wasn't ringing all the time. I didn't have a lot of people calling me, but it just was really strange that I would sit to meditate and the telephone would ring. I thought, "Wow, that's also interesting." You know, so uh, so I solved that in the short term by just taking the phone off the hook and. And also changing my consciousness, I remember Mr. Davis telling me back in the early seventies um, he he mentioned one time he did, he says, "I have a good travel consciousness. It's like I see myself where i'm going where I'm supposed to be, and I know that everything's in divine order, everything will work out, and all the pieces just fall in place and And I remember you know thinking, "Wow, a good travel consciousness." And, and we can apply that to many things. So not only did I incorporate and see myself as having a good travel consciousness, but I began to see myself also as having an uninterrupted meditation that was useful. And so in the process of using our creative imagination, you know, we can visualize these conditions, the circumstances that imply the result and imply a success and have the feeling that's associated with that. And then allow the universe to move through that pattern, through that blueprint, and so, and so I found that I could, you know, use my creative imagination to feel that my meditation was uninterrupted and that it was beneficial and useful. That it was that I was going through this awakening process, and so that was also very helpful. So, so there is resistance, you know, oftentimes in the beginning, um, resistance to change. Yes, I know I should do better with my diet, but, you know, yes, I know I should go get some exercise. I know I should be more regular with my exercise, but I don't have time. It's too hard. Um, You know, I know I should make a change in this way or in that way, but then immediately the mind comes up with all the reasons why we can't do that, you know, and even to the level at which I, you know, I often advise people to at least... You know, consider the possibility that if things are not working well in your life, if you're really having a lot of challenges and a lot of problems and a lot of obstacles and things just seem to be stuck, um, to just decide to be somebody different. You know, you can just, tonight you can sit down and write down, well, what are all the characteristics, the attributes of somebody that would be the ideal me? What would that look like? if I didn't have these limitations and didn't have these habits and didn't have these conditionings and didn't have people disrespecting me and pushing me around and, and all this stuff, what would it be like? And you can just write down what, what the new you would be better to, to write in a positive way. This is what I want, not this is what I want to get rid of. If we're putting attention and energy into what we want to get rid of, we just give it, we're just feeding it more life force and it just stays real. But if we put our attention and our energy on what we want to, to aspire to experience, then that becomes real. Then we energize that. So we can just write down a list of our characteristics of the new us. And then when we wake up tomorrow morning, be that person. Just make the change. It's, it's really, you know, I say it's simple. It's really that simple to just get up tomorrow and be a new person. And, of course, the resistance that the mind has is, well, if I show up as this new person, people are not going to understand. People expect me to do this. I have these responsibilities. I can't just, you know, come out completely different and act differently. Um, What will people think? So I'll be afraid of what will people think. I'll be afraid of what will happen. What will the consequences be? Maybe people won't like me anymore. The new me may not be, you know. Uh, friendly to the people that I've been hanging around with and of course maybe the people I've been hanging around with aren't the right people so that's okay too Um, but we can make the change and be who we need to be at any time see this is possible but we have to overcome the resistance and so so the resistance is is um, is uh, on one side is the Dhritarashtra and Duryodhana and so they are based in ego and there's this, uh they're rattling their sabers and making all this noise. There's this false confidence. It seems like the character that we've created for ourselves, the habits and the routines that we've established have some power and have some uh, some inertia, you know. And so and so we have this false self sense of self-confidence that I can do this. I know how to work this, you know. I can make it, you know, I can, I can do what needs to be done, even though, even though it hasn't been manifesting, even though it hasn't been happening, you see. So, this false sense of confidence from within neutralizes our rational thinking. We're not thinking clearly, fragmented, blurred, remember? And so, this false sense of inner confidence neutralizes our rational thinking and This feeling of being empowered, being in charge, being in control. You know, this all is coming out of this ego. All of that comes out of this sense of separation. The feeling of being in charge, being in control. Everyone has this, everyone, mostly everybody, has this need to feel like they're in control. They have this need to feel like, you know, Somehow I'm in charge of my life and the circumstances, the things that are going on around. And this is completely illusory. You know, we're never in control. We're never in charge. You know, life is happening and uh, it's happening in wonderful ways, but we don't know, you know, and we can't control the weather. We can't control other people. I remember this beautiful story about the, uh, the farmer who had this, Uh, amazing beautiful white mare this horse that was his pride and joy and uh, one day his son his teenage son forgot to close the paddock and and the white mare escaped she ran away and the neighbor came over and said oh this is terrible terrible I'm so sorry for you you know you've lost your your beautiful horse and I know how much you loved her and the farmer said well you never know and then the next day the mare came back to the paddock and following her was this beautiful black stallion, a wild horse had followed her back and they closed the paddock. And now he had not only the white mare, but this beautiful black stallion. And the neighbor came over and said, said, wow, what a blessing. You know, what a gift. It's a good thing that that mare got out because look, now you have this beautiful black horse. And not only is it a remarkable horse, but it's probably worth something too. And the neighbor and the farmer said, well, you never know. So the next day, the farmer's son, his teenager, decides he's going to go out and break the, break the uh, stallion and, you know, put a saddle on him and ride him and get him to a place where he can be uh, be useful. And so he goes out to, to get, the, get the saddle on the horse. He gets up on the horse, and immediately the horse bucks him off. He falls and he breaks his leg. So the neighbor comes over and goes, oh, this is terrible, you know, terrible fortune. I'm so sorry, your son broken his leg and, you know, too bad that horse showed up. And the farmer said, you never know. So then the next day, the military comes through and the military is conscripting all the young men to go off to war. And because the son has a broken leg, they can't take him. So the neighbor comes over and goes, Wow, what a blessing. You know, your son's leg will heal, but at least he'll be here. He's not going to be out fighting and possibly get killed. What a blessing. And the neighbor said and the and the farmer says, you never know. And this is life. We don't know, you know. But we can be conscious and mindful and we can be aware of what's happening and as the as the circumstances and events ebb and flow we can always be grounded and be aware and be conscious so so this illusion of being in control and being in charge you know this is this is part of this deluded mind so on so we have this on one side here is the here's these uh here's the the ego and deluded mind is all you know Uh, rattling their sabers and blowing their conks and their horns and trumpeting and on the other side we have arjuna and and the pandavas and their brothers and this is um and they begin to blow their conks their their horns and here they here we have enthusiasm i'm sorry enthusiasm and spirituality self-control equanimity truth consciousness pure love omniscience Shakti energy. So these are all the 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 power that is coming from the spiritual side. So over here on Arjuna's side, on the side of the Pandavas, we have this spiritual energy, spiritual life force, this juice. And on the other side, we have the conditionings and the deluded mind and the desires, the lower desires and the passions and all this. And here we are, and they're both blowing their horns and they're both proud of themselves and aspiring to win this battle and so now we have uh, just before the the battle begins Arjuna who is the the leader he's kind of the head general for the Pandavas for the spiritual side and he is uh, in the chariot his chariot is being uh, driven by Krishna so Krishna enlightened consciousness is the charioteer driving the chariot the chariot represents the body the five horses that are that are pulling the chariot represent the five senses and so we have this inside conversation between the aspiring soul and higher consciousness and and arjuna asks krishna he says. Before the battle starts, take me out in the middle of the battlefield so I can survey and see what's happening and see what the forces are. And as he comes down to the middle of the field of Dharmakshatra, Kurukshetra, um, and looks on both sides, he goes, oh my, you know, what are we to do? Here's the opposing forces and the opposing forces are made of individualized consciousness. This, this is my sense of self. Who I am, the character I've created. This is who we're going to try to kill. This is what we're trying to do battle with. And here we have uh, our, you know, the individuals that represent our memories. All my memories, all this past is all part of this um, system, you know, of conditionings. Uh, The fathers, the fathers and the grandfathers. These are the causes of actions. So all the causes of actions, all the results, all the teachers all the mental impressions, all the vrittis, the mental waves, the restlessness, material desires, um, you know, these sense of ego, this sense of being myself, all the fantasy, all the wishful thinking, you know, all the input from the senses, all this sweetness of, of interaction, all this, this is who we're doing battle with. This is, you know, this is the, the result of this deluded mind and the, the uncontrolled passions so he so Arjuna looks at this and then on the other side here are the cousins and this is omniscience and Kundalini and and um, the positive vrittis the memories of awakening and the memories of oneness and wholeness and these impressions that still remain from this deep abiding sense of being of self and so he's seeing Seeing here that there is no winning this battle, because you know if if the side if the uh, side of the Kuru's dominates, it will destroy and eliminate all of the sense of spiritual being and oneness and wholeness and energy. And on the other hand, if we if the Pandavas dominate, if we win, we're killing off all the sense impressions, our memories, the teachers we've had. This, the character we've created for ourselves, all this will be destroyed, you know? There's no winning this. This is crazy. And so, so Arjuna has this, uh, this doubt. He has this fear. And this fear is a common fear for, for individuals beginning on their spiritual path and some who have been on the path for a very long time. And it is the fear that I will cease to be it's the fear that I won't be me anymore. It's the fear that whatever has made me this individuality, this sense of ego, you know, which they keep saying is a bad thing. You know, it's, it's the, the, the sense of separation is the, really the bad thing. It's the non-useful thing. So when I let go of the sense of being separate, what's left? If I'm no longer me, if I'm no longer what I think of as myself, What's left? You know, I've had people in in the beginning of teaching meditation who thought, well, if I empty my mind completely, I'll be like a vegetable. I won't be anything, see. So there is this fear, this fear that we will cease to be, this fear that our memories will be gone, that our character will be gone, that all these things that the senses have been feeding us, all this will disappear if we're successful in our spiritual quest. And it's like, well, you know, I'm really not sure I wanna sign up for that. So I have this impulse to be awake and then at the same time, there is some doubt and there is fear and there is anxiety about losing my sense of individuality. And we even have questions that come up often about, well, what happens after we die? What happens when we're no longer in this physical body? Will I still have my sense of individuality? Will I still be what I think I am, you see, or who I think I am? So this is a question that's, you know, that underlies a lot of what we're doing and, and can, can, be, uh, can indicate part of the obstacle we have to, to being fully awake. The obstacle to being fully awake is that we're kind of afraid that being fully awake means that we're not going to fully be us anymore. And of course, this is foolishness. It's, it's complete foolishness. However, this is a very real sensation, a re- very real condition. And so, and so this is how we end the first chapter in the, in the Gita is Krishna is having this crisis of faith. He's having this doubt. And at the end of the chapter, he said, he drops his bow and arrows and he says, I I can't lead this. I won't, I, you know, there's no winning this. This is crazy. I'm not going to fight. And so even though enlightened consciousness is leading and he's in his chariot is under the banner of Hanuman, Hanuman is um, the fearless success, uh, successful, uh, warrior, even though all this, uh, Arjuna loses faith and says, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so this is really the, the drama, the dilemma that everyone faces at some point is, can I allow myself to let go of these conditionings? Can I change these habits? Can I let go of these um, ideas and these feelings that I have? Can I just let them go and replace them with something positive, useful? I will not be the same me I was yesterday, but I will be the same awareness because that's never changing. This essence of being, what we are, we've always been that. We know that. And so the external part that we're identified with, it will change. It always has. And you never know how it's going to change next. But you can know that it's going to change in a positive way if we're being conscious, if we're awake, if we're not being pushed and pulled around by the, you know, the the impulses of the senses and by the ideas of other people. We know what the news is saying and what the people in our gang are saying. And, you know, if we we can become conscious and be stable, be grounded in the awareness of our own being, then we can make conscious choices. And even though we don't know what's going to happen, we know that whatever does happen, we have the ability to deal with it we have the ability to be always be joyful to be to have the capacity to handle what comes up and some of it's not pleasant but it's still handleable and as we take care of business as we do what needs to be done we find that we continue to live joyfully grounded with the awareness that we are part of the wholeness of this reality and so so that's available so so tomorrow we'll get into krishna's response to this um, kind of wimpy Arjuna, you know, he's kind of um, laying down on the job here, and uh, and Krishna will begin to educate him about what is really going on around here. What are you, and what is the nature of this battle that we're talking about, and how does all this work? So that will be on our on our agenda for tomorrow. So uh, as we conclude, are there any questions, anything obvious? It's lots to think about. And of course, all this is coming from, uh, is inspired by Mr. Davis's book, um, The Eternal Way, where he gives lots of explanations about all the symbology and much, much more in-depth description of the process that we're talking about here. Um, uh, So basically, that's available, and I highly recommend checking into that, uh, reviewing it. Um, So if there's no more questions for today, no questions for today, thank you all for being with us, for sharing your consciousness and your beautiful smiles. And, you know, this is all time that we spend uh, in this kind of conversation, time that we spend thinking about God and about our own spiritual nature and in, um, and supporting and nurturing our own spiritual growth. This is self-love. This is a way of respecting and honoring the life that we have. So Ron, all very useful. Yes, Ron, uh, I wanted to ask a question. You had said that all uh, the techniques that are used will take us to the same place. Do you feel like the, like the Prana, the uh, Kriya Pranayama technique is uh, more useful for most people or how does that fit into that because you said Uh, earlier that that, that, i think you said that everything would take us to the same place yes yeah yes everything will take us to the same place and uh the kriya pranayama is not only a a a very much more kind of focused attention so we're paying much more deeper attention during that process um but it's also for a fairly limited time. The advantage of the kriya pranayama is that it also because we are circulating energy through the vital centers that it has a tendency to neutralize and to pacify some of these conditionings some of the the karma some of the the conditionings that are uh, that rest in the subconscious level and so so not only are we energizing the chakras, bringing more life force and more energy into our awareness, but we're also neutralizing some of the karma, some of the conditioning slowly, but slowly. And so this can have a beneficial and transformative process. But again, we, you know, we um, we don't sit and practice Kriyas for the whole hour that we're sitting to meditate. Right. We do that as a, for a time and then, and then rest in awareness and if and if, we're, if the mind is still restless and if thoughts persist, then we can choose another technique and use that as a point of focus. However, all we need to do, you know, really, is just to focus. I remember Roy telling this beautiful story about uh, about the fellow who was kind of dimwitted, and uh, he would show up every morning for meditation at the group uh and then afterwards he would go to the guru and he'd say please give me a mantra i you know please i wish to be awake i know i need a mantra and and the guru you know this person was really kind of slow witted and not really with it and he said no no you don't need a mantra not now well every day this guy would come back to the guru and say please please give me a mantra please master and so finally eventually the guru said all right i'll give you a mantra come tomorrow morning here in the temple at six o'clock and we'll I'll take care of that so the fellow was so excited he almost couldn't sleep all night he got up early and then he didn't remember he said did the guru say five o'clock or six o'clock and so he said must have been five o'clock he's an early riser so so the fellow goes down to the temple and it's all dark nobody's there and he said oh maybe he meant to come to his house and so five o'clock in the morning, the disciple goes to the guru's house and knocks on the door, bam, bam, bam. The housekeeper comes to the door and opens it up and says, what What do you want? And he says, I'm, I'm here, I have an appointment with the guru. And she says, no, no, the guru's still, he's still getting up and taking care of his bathroom. And he, and this fellow pushes the door open, says, get out of my way, woman, I have an appointment, and he marches through the house, goes straight back to the bathroom, where the guru is sitting there brushing his teeth, and he says, Guruji, I'm here, please give me the mantra, and the guru can't believe this guy's actually invaded his bathroom, and he turns around and raises his hand, he says, get out, get out, or I'll slap you upside the head, and the, you know, the devotee goes back and says, oh, thank you, thank you for my mantra, <laughs> So then he goes to the temple, sits down, and begins. Every time, slightest little mental fluctuation comes up, he goes, "Get out, get out, or I'll slap you upside the head." And of course, very quickly, he was mind was completely clear, and he was enlightened. <laughs> so, so it's not about uh, you know fancy techniques. It's about keeping them, letting the mind come quiet. That's the important part. Okay, Ron, just a. A personal note, how much I appreciate what you've done by moving the 45 minute meditations. I find that my meditation is quite quite different than it was in a 25 30 minute meditation, so I really appreciate you teaching me that again. Thank you. Good. Good. An hour is even better, but you know we take it baby steps. Yeah: <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. so uh, thank you all for joining us, and, uh, and we'll see you tomorrow and be joyful. It's important. Thank you, everyone. Namaste. Thank Namaste. You.